Well, good morning, everybody. I'm glad to see a nice full crowd this morning. That's a lot easier for me. Last week when I did the sermon, it didn't record well, so I had to redo the sermon in the afternoon. And I've never tried to speak to empty chairs, and that was the hardest thing I've ever tried to do, is to speak to empty chairs. And I'm, it's no fun, and it's glad to see that, I'm very glad to see how full we are this morning. And As we talked about last week, um, we're going through just a two-week series on marks of a healthy church. And the reason we're doing that is really because we are a new church. We've been around 10, 11 months. And I think it's very important for us to understand what it is we are trying to be. We don't want to just do church. We want to be a faithful church that follows um, what God's word says a church should be. So it's important for us to understand what his word says. So last week, um, we kind of went through the first three items of marks of a healthy church. We talked about the commitment to the absolute authority of Scripture. We then secondly talked about the importance of a biblical theology, of having sound doctrine. And thirdly, we talked about the gospel, that we must believe it, teach it, and live, live it out. You know, these first three things are essential. Um, if, if you're at a church that isn't committed to those three things, you need to find a new church. Um, the seven that we're going to talk about today, and I know that's a lot, but we're just going to briefly go through most of them, and then we'll dig in deeper on one of them. Um, but the final seven aren't necessarily essential in the terms of being a true church or a false church, but they are still very, very important. And if they're not present in a church, you have to seriously consider whether that's the church you should be at. So let's do a, a quick review, mainly because some of you weren't here last week, and then also because the recording didn't work, but I won't go anywhere near the, the depth we did last week. But we, inter- we had an introduction where we talked about just the nature of the church, and how the church is the only institution that Christ promised to build and to bless. In Matthew 16:18, Christ says, I will build my church, uh, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. We talked about that. We then secondly talked about how the church is the most precious assembly on earth because Christ purchased it with his own blood. Um, And there's a number of references there, Acts 20, 28, and 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. But in Acts 20, 28, when Paul's talking to the Ephesian elders, um, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So the church was purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. Then thirdly, we talked about how the church is the bride of Christ. And we spent a lot of time going through Ephesians 5 uh, of really understanding what it means that Christ loved the church, how he gave himself up for the church, um, that he might sanctify her, to present her... uh, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and without blemish. We talked about how um, he nourishes and cherishes the church. Um, in verse 28, it talked about in the, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. And that's something we just don't often think about, is how Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. And then we, we talked about how it's an unbreakable love between Christ and the church. Um, 
The passage then talks about, Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You know, it's easy to think of the mystery being how a man and a woman can become one flesh, and he's talking about how the mystery is profound, that it's really about how um, Christ's union with the church. And that is an unbreakable love, and we should be so grateful for that. Then we talked about a commitment to the absolute authority of Scripture, that the Word teaches us all that we need to know about God and how He wants us to live. We walked through 2 Timothy, uh, the end of 2 Timothy 3 and the first part of 2 Timothy chapter 4. So the Word teaches us all that we need to know about God and how He wants us to live. We talked about the idea of, of sola scriptura, of Scripture alone, that Scripture is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. It is sufficient. It is all we need. It, um, it contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and for obeying Him, um, as Wayne Gruden has said in his systematic theology book. It contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and for obeying Him perfectly. And we talked about, secondly, was sound doctrine, having a biblical theology. It's important to believe that the Word of God is the absolute authority, but we have to understand the Word of God correctly. Um, Every church obviously, in a sense, believes that they're being accurate with the Word, but they're not handling it correctly. We must understand it correctly. We must have sound doctrine. And there's a long list in the pastoral epistles in Timothy and Titus of where Paul is charging them to teach sound doctrine, to teach healthy doctrine. Um, And we are committed to teaching biblical truth and submitting to the Word of God and to interpreting it correctly. We talked about how every church really decides, based on the Word of God, of course, um, where it requires complete agreement, where it permits limited disagreement, and where it allows really liberty on on doctrinal issues. Um, It's a little hard to to see because I tried to use some colors here on, on the overhead. of I originally had red, yellow, and green, kind of like a stoplight, uh, if it was red, you know, those are doctrines that are essential to the faith, related to the Trinity, you know, who God is, Christ, the Holy Spirit, salvation, the authority of Scripture. To disagree on those core issues is really is to deny true Christianity. And the person is not a true believer. Then the second category was really doctrines essential to church life. And I changed that to orange just so it'll show up better for you. Um, But doctrines essential to church life, and these do not define the gospel, um, but they're very important. Believing Christians can and may disagree on these things, but the disagreement will create boundaries in a local congregation. It's tough in a a local congregation. We talked about if someone's believing in in elder rule and someone else believes in congregational rule, and they're insistent on congregational rule, and and it's an elder rule church. They're going to have a conflict and a difficulty in terms of submission and walking in obedience. And there's other issues on baptism, infant baptism versus adult believer's baptism, and charismatic gifts, and election, and free will. And there's other things that would fall into that category as well. So you can still be a believing Christian, but disagreement creates you know, issues in that local congregation. And the third category is really doctrines where disagreement does not threaten fellowship of the local congregation. Christians can disagree and remain in close fellowship. Um, these are kind of 
you know, non-core issues, um, eschatology or future events. Not everybody in this body is going to have the same understanding or the same beliefs on what um, the future events hold. Um, it's challenging to understand what, uh, what Revelation is talking about, what's literal, what's symbolic, different things. And sometimes we fall in different areas on that. Um, another issue may be like nonviolence of a pacifism. Um, so some Christians in their conscience could not you know, participate in war or even in matters of self-defense. And I found that this is really helpful, I think, for us in how to view um, you know, theology and how it applies to our life in the church. And third, we talked uh, briefly at the end, because we were running quite long, we talked about really the, the gospel and how important it is to believe it, to teach it, and to live it out. And it's so important that we understand it correctly. You know, the gospel, to understand the good news of salvation, you have to understand the bad news. You can't just talk about the good news. You need to understand the, the problem. And that problem is that we've rebelled from a holy God and He is just in punishing us for our sin. Only when we understand that, that can we understand the good news of what Christ did on the cross for us as a sacrificial substitute. And we also, it's important that we not just believe it, but that we teach it. And we have to teach it accurately and faithfully. We must never soften the gospel message to make it more acceptable. It's so easy to do in an audience to, to, to try to soften it, to talk more about belief and not repentance. But when we, when we soften the gospel, when we change the gospel, we've turned it into a false gospel. And we never want to change what God has given us in His Word. So we need to believe it, we need to teach it, and we need to live it out. Salvation requires repentance from sin. Um, it's not just a belief in God and a historical Jesus. It's repentance over sin and putting our complete faith and trust uh, in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that He died for our sins and was buried and rose again. Those who have been truly born again, or as, as John 3 describes it, born from above, will live out um, the truth of the Gospel. Their lives will surely show it. And I grew up as a little kid singing that song, if you're saved and you know it, your, your life will surely show it. And it's a simple truth, but so many question that today of whether that is true, but it is. If you're truly saved, your life will show it. It will bear fruit. You know, we will have a transformed view towards sin in our own life and in others, and we'll have a passion to share the truth of the gospel with others. So those are the first three and kind of reviewing of what we talked about last week. So this morning we have... Seven items, which anybody who would tell you that teaching a message, you should probably never have seven items in a, in a, in a message. It's way too many. Um, and we understand that, but we want to lay that groundwork for everybody and to think about these things. Um, some of them we're going to go through quickly. Other ones we'll spend some more time on. But we need to have a biblical understanding of conversion. So the first thing we want to talk about is a biblical understanding of conversion. True conversion is a work of God. And if you're uncertain of that, look at John 3. When, uh, look at Ezekiel 36 and 37, um, where God talks about replacing a heart of stone with a heart of flesh and how that leads to repentance. Notice the order of what happens. Read John 3 as he talks about how it's the work of the Spirit um, in a person's life. Um, but it is a work of God that results in repentance. He replaces this heart of stone with the heart of flesh. It's the only way we'll repent. And true conversion, as I said even earlier, results in fruit. It results in good works. 
It results in a desire to wage war against sin. It results in a desire for fellowship with each other. It results in a different attitude toward trials. Um, we never really, it's still hard to consider it all joy, as James says, um, but we can do that through Christ of understanding that it perfects us, understanding that it tests the genuineness of our faith. You know, in the parable of, of the sower and the soils, when the word falls on good soil, it is not just heard, but it's understood and bears fruit. Um, it's another great passage that really talks about there's people that will hear the gospel, um, but did they, did they really understand it and did it result in, in fruit? Um, that is the good soil. Good soil will result in fruit. Next is is evangelism. Evangelism has to be a characteristic of this church. We are called to care, to plead, and to persuade others. You know, this flows out of understanding the gospel, understanding conversion, understanding um, the the nature of Scripture. We will be about pleading others. The 2 Corinthians 5.11 says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And it's Vitally that we understand that this isn't about getting decisions for Christ. A lot of churches in in America talk about getting decisions, and and everything's geared towards an emotional response of getting a decision uh, from somebody, and particularly with with young children, of getting them to raise their hand to repeat a prayer. Um, It's not about that. That's not the way Scripture describes it. Um, evangelism is about faithfully sharing the truth of the gospel. And since we understand conversion is a work of God, it's not trying to manipulate the hearer into having a response. It's about faithfully teaching the truth, and the Holy Spirit will work in that heart and generate that response. Um, But it's vitally important that we do not neglect evangelism and and fall into the trap of thinking, well, it's all of God and the Holy Spirit will do this. We still are called and commanded to go and and share the the gospel, to make disciples, as Matthew 28 says. We need to be faithful to do that. As we do that, we must emphasize repentance. Um, Like I said earlier, it's easy to to really emphasize just a, a, a general belief. But how is that belief any different than what the demons believe? They believe in, in, in a God. They believe and understand who Christ was. But there's no repentance on their part. And that's the, the difference. We must emphasize repentance. And here's a long quote that I, I ran across in the last few weeks by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's the great uh, preacher um, from the mid-20th century. Repentance means that you realize that you are a guilty, vile sinner in the presence of God and that you deserve the wrath and punishment of God and that you are hellbound. It means that you begin to realize that this thing called sin in you is in you and that you long to get rid of it and that you turn your back on it in every shape and form. You renounce the world, whatever the cost, the world in its mind and outlook as well as its practices, and you deny yourself and take up the cross and go after Christ. Your nearest and dearest, and the whole world may call you a fool or say you have a religious mania. You may have to suffer financially, but it makes no difference. That is repentance. We must emphasize that in, in how we interact, how we teach children, how we teach adults, how we evangelize, how we share with our neighbors, how we share with our family members, calling them to repentance. 
So we've talked about conversion. We've talked about um, evangelism briefly. And we want to talk about something that we isn't as common in, in our cultural context of Whatcom County, but in other parts of the country, um, church membership is, is, is something that is a very, very vital aspect that they, that they focus on. But we must have a biblical understanding of membership. And that's kind of weird because the Bible doesn't talk about church membership. It doesn't, it's just kind of an implied thing. If you've received Christ, you were, in a sense, ostracized from the community you were in, and there was only one church. So they didn't really have formal church membership. Um, there wasn't picking and choosing of the church in that local town. You know, so in New Testament times, there was really just one church, and it was understood that you would be uh, a member of it if you've made that commitment, especially when baptism was, was so public. I mean, the whole community knew that you had been baptized down by the river um, and that you had, in a sense, separated from the, the Judaism of the day and, and received Christ. But membership involves commitment and responsibility. And whether that's totally formalized and, and all that, it, it, we're not going to really focus on. But membership involves commitment. Hebrews 10, 23-25 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It involves commitment because we're not to neglect to meet together. We're not to, to neglect encouraging one another. So there's a commitment on this horizontal plane with each other um, to gather, to encourage each other. And so it involves commitment. And then secondly, it involves responsibility. Um, we're not neglecting each other, but we're living out the one another's in Scripture. I'm not going to go into those because time-wise, we wouldn't even begin to scratch the surface. Um, hopefully you're familiar with love one another is repeated numerous times in Scripture. Build up one another. Serve one another. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. Um, be devoted to one another. Submit to one another. All those are things that we are commanded to do within the context of, of the local church community. And we must be about um, fulfilling our biblical responsibility and commitment towards each other. It also means affirmation of salvation. And this is something that we don't think of in our context, really at all, I don't think. In, in, you know, I read a book by Mark Dever uh, about Marks of a Healthy Church, and he's in the South, and more in a, a Southern Baptist background, and there you would have, it wasn't uncommon for a church that had maybe 100 people to have 200 members. That's kind of goofy to us, because we would think it's more likely to have a church of 200 people and maybe 100 members who've actually taken that step and committed. But in, in more of the Southern Baptist culture, it's different. Um, they kind of make that decision, they're pushed to membership, and then they kind of see church as optional, or even if they're really not genuine believers, they're left on membership roles and can go around saying, well, yeah, I'm a member of such and such church. Um, but he thinks and, and argues, and I think persuasively, that, that membership is, is really an affirmation of salvation by the church. If somebody's going around saying, I'm a member of Trinity Bible Church, what they're saying is Trinity Bible Church has affirmed that that person is saved. That they've you know, sat down with them, that they've been 
that they understand the gospel and they believed it and put their faith and trust in Christ, that they've been baptized. That's what being a, you know, the requirements of membership. So it's an affirmation of salvation um, to have people that are members that aren't living as believers is contradictory. You know, uninvolved members will confuse both real members and non-Christians of what it means to be a Christian. Um, he says membership is the church's corporate endorsement of a person's salvation. So in other words, by calling someone a member, you're saying that the individual is a Christian. And it, it was for something for me I hadn't really thought of. And it's still something that, you know, my mind is kind of pondering and, 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 and understanding. What does that mean? How does that you know, work itself out within the church body. I get the importance of when someone says, hey, I want to be a member, of really sitting down and making sure they understand the gospel. Um, if you've been in any type of leadership position and sat down with people, it's not a very comfortable situation when they're wanting to, to go to become a member and you start asking them questions and they can't really communicate back the truth of their salvation to where you're uncertain. And it puts you in a tough spot of it's easy to say, well, I think they get it. And you just kind of rubber stamp it and keep them in. And if they don't, they'll get it later. Well, that's not the wise way of doing it. I mean, the important thing is right then and there, making sure the person really understands um, the nature of salvation. Because it is, you know, we will be, in a sense, affirming that people are not only saved, but as we'll get to next, that they're walking in obedience to um, the Scriptures. There's a seventh one that we want to talk about this morning is holiness or discipline in the church. This isn't something that is normally talked about, so I'm going to talk about it a little bit more. Um, but it, it's something that kind of makes, can make the hair on your neck stand up. It can make you a little uncomfortable and make you squirm in, our, in, in your seat. Um, but it's something that Scripture teaches that we need to pursue holiness in the church and that at times that means there's the need for discipline in the church towards towards members who are claiming salvation but not walking in obedience. The early reformers kind of understood and taught, you know, when I talked about it last week, of what a true church is and how a true church is one where the gospel is rightly taught or the word of God is rightly taught. And that secondly, it's one in where the sacraments, baptism and communion are rightly administered. But it only took a few years for them to kind of start adding the idea that the concept that church discipline is exercised in punishing of sin. And to them, it was just clarifying something that they considered as part of two, as item two, which was that communion was rightly administered. Communion was only administered to somebody who was walking faithfully with Christ. Um, therefore, they would, in a more administrative way, they would withhold communion from somebody whose life was contrary to it. We, we have such a culture where, you know, and, and it's presented where you need to examine yourself and decide whether you should participate in communion. Um, in that time frame, and it's still in some churches today, it, it is the responsibility of, of the, the pastor or elders. If somebody is not, should not be taking communion, they make sure they don't serve it to them. They take that upon themselves. So this is a, a difficult subject because, you know, in a culture, and Philip talked about this when, um, a couple weeks back, where, you know, do not judge and, and understanding that passage. You know, people will always say, hey, we're not supposed to judge one another. That's what it says. Well, that isn't exactly what it says. It says in Matthew 7 to, to make sure you've dealt with sin in your own life first, then deal with the speck in someone else's life. So we are to judge one another. 
Um, 1 Corinthians 5, 12, and 13, there was an issue in the Corinthian church, and they are commanded to, to judge that sinning believer in the church. And the purpose of it is purity. God wants His people to be holy. God wants His church to be holy. You know, 1 Peter 1.16, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That is what we are commanded to be. That is what the church is commanded to be. And no church stands up and, and publicly or on their website is going to say, look, we intend to tolerate sin. Nobody's going to say that. We intend to tolerate error. You know, they don't broadcast that. But in reality, many do. Um, if you've gone through a study of, of the churches in Revelation, in Revelation 2 and 3, um, it's quite clear. You know, Christ commends them for certain things they were doing, but he says, this I have against you. You're tolerating sin. You're tolerating doctrinal error. You know, um, and he judges them and calls them to repent. Um, so while no church publicly says it, in practice many will. But the church cannot preach a message that it doesn't live. Um, it won't have any, uh, any integrity if it does that. It'll just be hypocritical. I think we hopefully all understand that sin and that sin and error <laughs> sin and error it corrupts our own life, but as a church it corrupts the church. Um, that's the context of a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You know, a little bit of sin spreads through. Does that mean we're perfect? Absolutely not. The Bible is clear that none of us reach perfection in this life, um, but we are to pursue holiness. We are to pursue it in our own lives and to pursue it in the church. We've got to make sure we don't abuse or misunderstand how Matthew 7 is abused to forbid what God clearly commands. It is not for forbidding judgment. It is forbidding a, a judgment where it's condemning and a judgment where you're not dealing with the sin in your own life first. That is what it is um, forbidding. So God has also designed the church to be self-policing. I'm not going to walk through Matthew 18. Hopefully you're familiar with Matthew 18, um, where Christ gives instruction on really what to do um, when your brother, if your brother sins against you. And he talks about, go to that person. And then if they, if they, if they repent, if they listen to you, you've gained your brother back. But if they don't, then go with, the, you know, take somebody else with you, you know, and, and goes through it. And if they don't repent then, to, to take it to the church. You know, and then to that person, if they're choosing to live like a non-believer yet claim they're a Christian, in a sense, they're, they're ostracized. They are removed from the fellowship or excommunicated um, from that. So God has designed the church to be both self-policing and for elders to exercise authority, as Titus 1.9 talks about. But I think it's important for us to understand what this is not. Okay, Because it, it can make us very nervous if we say, hey, we're going to be a church that... Uh, obeys what Scripture says regarding church discipline. It's not about running around people trying to, to find sin in someone's life and saying, gotcha, I saw you do something. You did this. You, you were going 58 in that 50 zone, and that's terrible. Or you, you know, it's not about that. It's not about being the sin police. It's not about just being focused on looking at the speck in other people's eyes and looking for the faults. It's not about being judgmental and trying to be harsh and unloving and tearing down or condemning others. That's not the purpose. The way Scripture describes this, this is something that is to be compassionate towards others. It is something that we're all corporately focused on purity um, within the local church body. 
We're not focused on being speck seekers in other people's eyes. We're all focused on removing the log in our own eyes. And only then are we able to and equipped to help the other person with the speck in their own eye. So we'll be primarily focused on being log removers. And occasionally we'll be, you know, speck removers as a way. It's not about being judgmental, but being discerning. It's not about being harsh, but being gentle. As Galatians 6.1 says, and let me turn there just so you can... Um, sorry. Galatians 6.1. So right after the end of uh, in chapter 5, when he's talking about walking by the Spirit, um, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh, its passions, and its desires. We live by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. And then chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, it's about bearing the burden there is, is not like a financial burden. It's, it's, it's helping them with their sin issue and bearing them, helping them um, up through that to overcome that issue. So it's about being gentle about being eager to forgive and loving. Not so eager to forgive that we're dismissing the sin and not dealing with it, but eager to forgive when the person's repented. It's about building up, not tearing down. It's about rescuing and restoring. Um, the best message I ever heard on this was really was entitled about rescuing um, the fallen brother. It's a search and rescue was the analogy he used. Uh, not about this condemning of how it... it is incorrectly so often done in a church. It's about realizing the person is your brother, not the enemy. So is this for every sin we see? Does this mean we're going to walk around and, and try to say, oh, my job then is to see if so-and-so sinned and, and to be the, 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 the sin monitor? No, it's not for every sin we see. This is not about personal wrongs that we can cover. It's 1 Corinthians 13.5 and 1 Peter 4.8. Um, are references for that. It's not about personal wrongs that we can cover. It's not about personal preferences or convictions. Romans 14 talks about the, 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 the issue of personal convictions and preferences um, and how we're not to pass judgment on someone else. You know, in a sense, these are, you know, whether somebody holds to the Sabbath or doesn't, doesn't mean we are to um, pass judgment on that person. So it's not about personal preferences or convictions. It's not about things we heard secondhand. You know, someone's going to come up because they're afraid to do it. They're going to come up to you and say, hey, so-and-so did this. Well, don't tell me secondhand. If, if, if they did it to you and it's something that's not a personal wrong you can cover, then you need to go to that person uh, and deal with that. Um, you know, it's not about the secondhand, thirdhand information and, and things like that. It's not about sins we haven't repented of. And we talked about what Matthew 7 um, goes into. So it's not about sins that we haven't repented of. Matthew 7. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of 
your brother's eye. So we need to deal, when we see somebody in a situation and we have that same problem, our job isn't to go and condemn them and point out their sin. We need to be realizing that, my goodness, we have that same problem and we need to go and repent of our own sin and deal with um, the log in our own eye. Then we will be um, able to, to help them remove the speck and walk them through the steps of removing the speck in their eye. So it's not about personal wrongs or preferences and sins that we haven't repented of. What are we talking about then? We're really talking about clear violations of God's Word. We're talking about sins that are characteristic of the non-believer. You know, 1 Corinthians 5, 9-11 through 11, you know, kind of gives a list of, of those sins. It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. While no believer, is clear from the word, can habitually practice those sins and, and be actually a believer, it doesn't mean that it's impossible for a Christian to ever steal or to be drunk or to revile or swindle or to, to, to fall into immorality. Um, but these are the sins that are absolutely cannot be characteristic of a non-believer and we are to go to them um, and confront that sin. It's also about issues of false teaching. First Timothy 1.20 talks about... Turn to that. And that talks about where, how you, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Um, verse 19 talks about right, by rejecting the truth and teaching, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. They practiced, he practiced church discipline with Hymenaeus and Alexander for their um, false teaching. Another one is not working. Second um, Thessalonians 3 um, talks about that, about idleness. Um, fourthly, it would be divisiveness. Titus 3, 9 and 10. Titus 3, verses 9 and 10, where it says, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So it's about sin's characteristic of the non-believer, about false teaching, about um, even not working, and about divisiveness. Um, within the local church body. Sorry, the font's a little small on this, but the biblical reasons for doing this, the reason for doing this for the sinning Christian is to restore him to the Lord and the church. It's not about condemning him. It's about restoring him um, to a right relationship with, with God and a right relationship with his fellow believers. Secondly, it's to create a sense of shame. To create a sense of shame. Um, that's from 2 Thessalonians uh, 3.14. 
when he's talking about idleness. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. That's something culturally we're not comfortable doing, but it's what God's Word calls us to do. To not have an association with that person so that they are ashamed. To deliver the person over to Satan for destruction of the flesh. That's in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, where he talks about the, the, the person in the Corinthian church. Um, and fourthly, would be to save his soul, to save the person's soul. Uh, if they're a true believer, you're, it's just about rescuing them uh, from their sin. Deliver this man to Satan. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, talking about the sexually immoral man in the Corinthian church. So destruction of the flesh and to save his soul. So it's about focused on restoring and rescuing that person. And that's the benefit and the purpose for the sinning Christian. The purpose for the church to do it, and I think we understand that, is to keep the church pure. To keep the church pure. Secondly, it is to protect the church from false teachers and doctrinal error. So to protect the church from false teachers and doctrinal error. That was the reason why, um, with Hymenaeus and Alexander, that, that, that Paul had removed them and handed them over to Satan and removed them from that local church body to protect it from the error. We've already looked at Titus 3, 10, and 11 um, earlier. And it's to make us afraid of sinning. To make us afraid of sinning. We should be afraid of sinning. We need to consciously, all the time, be aware uh, of the danger of sin. In this passage in, in uh, 1 Timothy 5.20, it's talking about um, elders who rule well to be, cons- to be um, considered worthy of double honor. Um, and then he says in verse 19, to not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Um, and as for those who persist, persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. To rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. We should be afraid of, of sinning. We should be, in a sense, fearful of being rebuked so that we are taking seriously the importance of holiness and purity. So that is something that, that because God's Word commands it, even though it's something that you know, we, in and of ourselves, probably wouldn't do, but that's, we're not relying on human wisdom. We're relying, and the church, relying on the revelation from God. And because God's Word says to do it, we will do it. We will strive at this church um, to, to be a pure church that is pleasing to God. So we've talked about conversion, evangelism, a biblical understanding of membership, we're talking about holiness, purity, discipline in the church. And we have three remaining in the last. The eighth one is discipleship discipleship. It's what the Great Commission is all about. I think we understand that. Go and make disciples. Matthew 28, 19. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's what we should be about as a church. And um, evangelism and, and discipleship. It's not about just making converts we talked about earlier. It's about making disciples. Because um, that's really what a, con- that's what a convert is, is a disciple. We also need to be a church that's reproducing leaders. 
We need to be producing future deacons, elders, pastors. You know, the New Testament model, I talked about this, I think, last week, is that the model is, is development from within, as 2 Timothy 2.2 um, states. Timothy was charged. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Supposed to continue on. Paul was teaching Timothy. Timothy was to teach faithful men who would be elders, and they were to teach um, faithful men. They were to reproduce leaders uh, within that local body. We have a very foreign concept, really, in, in, in American culture of, of this idea of really hiring pastors from without. It's not to say that's always wrong or anything like that, but really the biblical model is to train up um, people from within the body and to rise up as, as pastors, um, as elders. A pastor is an elder, and we would never think of, of hiring an elder from outside the body, yet we are fairly quick to hire a pastor from outside the body. Um, and there's, there's, there's definite dangers to that. They're, they're more of an employee. They're, they're, they don't have that connection um, to that local body. So that should be the exception of really when, when no one is qualified within a body. And then older women should be teaching younger women. Older men should be teaching younger men. Titus 2, um, 1 through 8, Paul's telling Titus, he says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. It says, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. As making it clear there, I mean, uh, older women teaching younger women, you know, him teaching uh, older men and younger men, because they really didn't have qualified people in that church. Um, but as it grew, it would be older men teaching younger men. Because um, people are watching. The world is watching to see if the church lives up to what they state. So we want to be a church about discipleship, uh, about training up future leaders, training everybody, no matter where they're at, should be growing um, in their spiritual walk. Number nine, second to the end, is biblical church leadership. The plurality of godly leaders. The local church is to be overseen by a plurality of elders, meaning more than one, a plurality. Titus 1.5, um, Titus is charged. This is why I left you in Crete, that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, plural, in every town as I directed you. Since each town only had one church, there was to be multiple elders in each uh, local body. But it's important. You know, they had, to be, they had to meet the qualifications. It wasn't just saying, oh, we need to have multiple people, so we're going to have multiple people whether they met the qualifications or not. He immediately then tells him the qualifications in Titus 1, um, 6 through 9. You know, and elders are to be wise, understanding, experienced men who meet all the qualifications. It's not about meeting most of the qualifications except certain ones. They have to meet all of the qualifications. They have to be above reproach. They have to be a one-woman man having children who are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Um, 
and must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but on the positive side, hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also able to rebuke those who contradict it. You know, it's not about the elder just being a successful businessman at all. That's not what the Word of God teaches about someone who's wise in administration. It's not about that. These are the qualifications. It's the teacher who is maturing in their walk with, with Christ and doing things that we're all commanded to do. So having a biblical church leadership. Lastly, this morning, uh, is a commitment to worship. A commitment to worship. We as a body, we don't want to ever lose sight of, of what this is all about, who this is all about. Uh, worship is not just singing. I mean, if you hear us when we stand up here or when we say prayers, we try not to make worship synonymous with singing. We'll talk about worshiping through giving, worshiping through singing, worshiping through hearing the word, worshiping through responding to the word, worshiping through how we live out our lives during the week. Um, they're not synonyms, yet in, in our culture they're very much are getting blurred. Worship is so much bigger than just that. And God loves to hear us sing to, to Him. Um, and singing is also to each other, which is a whole other topic, but um, God's Word points that out too. But there's three words in, in the Greek for, for, for worship, and Philip's taught on this if you were at um, faith few years back and, and different times since then. These three different ideas and that, that is captured in worship. Proskuneo, which was literally to fall on your face before somebody. And understanding that even though we're created in the image of God and we're greater than the animals and any other thing under his creation, but compared to, to God, God is infinitely worthy. And compared to God, we are worthless. The gap is huge. And that is why we fall on our face before him. And it's not even, you know, in Scripture, it's not even really this voluntary thing. It's because of the glory of who he is. Now, I don't think it's voluntary at all. You're going to fall on your face before him because of who he is. And we never, ever want to lose sight of the greatness of our God, that he is infinitely worthy of our praise. Because of that right understanding, it leads to the concept of, of the Greek word of sable, of a devotion to, a desire for something. It just flows right out of it. Um, that we just have that devotion to Him, that desire to, to do what is pleasing to Him. And then that leads to truo, which is really the outward expression of worship. And it's often translated service. And that's where it's our worship no matter what we're doing. If we're sweeping the floor in here, stacking chairs, serving the meal, um, taking care of the kids in nursery... It has to do with things in our lives. When we are outwardly expressing um, the reality of who God is, what He has done, and we're just seeking to, to walk in obedience to Him. And we are doing that, um, as Romans 12, 1 talks about, you know, our lives will be a living sacrifice. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we've covered a lot of things on really what is a healthy church. It has a commitment to absolute authority, commitment to, to a biblical theology of sound doctrine, a commitment to the gospel that we're going to believe it, teach it, live it out. Um, commitment to conversion, understanding that it's a work of God that results in, in fruit and good works. 
evangelism that we're called to persuade and to plead and to share the truth of the gospel. Um, It's not about manipulating, trying to get decisions. It's about sharing the truth and letting God do His work. Um, An understanding of membership, of that commitment amongst each other, um, that corporate responsibility of living out those one another's, that commitment to purity and holiness in our own lives and within the church, how we're first focused on dealing with sin in our own lives and then if so happen we see something in someone else's life where, where we can step in and help that person um, with that sin, um, and help them to deal with that and to rescue them from that, that we will do that. Um, it's about discipleship. It's about building them up, teaching and training. If, you know, We're all at different levels. I love how John MacArthur says, discipleship is finding somebody who knows less than you do and teaching them what you know. Um, it's about teaching and building up others about submission to an understanding of a biblical church leadership. And lastly, it's about a commitment to worship. You know, so healthy churches, churches that increasingly reflect the character of God as it's revealed in His Word, are not always the easiest places to be. Sometimes the sermons are going to be quite long. Maybe even dry. Who knows? You know, the expectations are going to be high. The talk of sin will probably seem overdone, excessive. The fellowship we have at times will seem intrusive, maybe more than what the flesh is really comfortable with. We'll be called to a submission that will be difficult. Walking in obedience may mean loss of relationships, and that's going to be painful. And it doesn't end. It's not like tomorrow is going to be any different. You know, it won't end really until we pass from this life to the next. But, you know, with all my heart, um, it's so worth it. Um, when we pass from this life to the next, when we stand before God, if we are faithful, there will be joy. Joy greater than any joy we've ever experienced, you know, in this life. Uh, when we stand before Him and we hear, well done, good and faithful servant, You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That will be a glorious day. And and we as a church want to be that. We want to be faithful to him. So when we stand before him, it will be pleasing. So let's pray.